0: Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Fuel Better podcast. I am your host as always Evan Lynch and in today's episode we are going to go through the ins and outs of what you need to know to prepare for altitude training. So this episode is going to be something that people will use on a yearly basis, maybe more, but it's something that I plan on putting out there that you can always come back to as a resource as altitude training frequently makes up part of an athlete's seasonal training program, uh, particularly if they are endurance-based athletes. The benefits of altitude training are well-established and well-known. We're going to go through them in this episode, but for now, kick back and let's get into it. Okay so before we get into the nutritional practices for managing altitude training and walking you through the things you can do to have a better altitude training camp and to get the most out of your couple of weeks at elevation it might be helpful to walk through exactly what we mean when we say altitude why does altitude work and what are some of the effects it has on our physiology. So firstly it's assumed that when we say altitude we mean an, an increased elevation so i'm sitting here in clonmel it's probably somewhere between one and three hundred meters elevation it's not quite sea level but it's not very high definitely not enough to uh, be advantageous for endurance sports so we classify altitude as the following so a low altitude training camp would be somewhere that would be somewhere between one and two thousand meters in elevation so this will be somewhere like parts of the sierra nevada mountain ranges in spain where quite a lot of our irish race walkers go to train particularly particular a town called guadix which is just around the kilometer mark then we are looking at moderate altitudes which would be anywhere from 2000 to 3000 meters in elevation you're looking at somewhere like font Rameau there in the south of france that's a very very popular altitude training camp that more or less fits that bill and finally, we classify high altitude training camps as anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 meters with extreme altitudes being beyond 5,000 meters. But for, I suppose, practical purposes, you're not really going to find many athletes or any athletes going above 3,000 meters altitude because it'll make training pretty much impossible. And I'll get into that in a couple of minutes time. And I suppose just for context, at this point in time, there are no popular training camps that I'm aware of that are above 3,000 meters altitude. You're looking at mountainous South American countries like Peru and Chile for, for those kinds of altitudes. The indigenous people there are physiologically adapted to such terrains. But for the most part, athletes are going to be training around the 2000 meter mark that's that's where most people will tend to go that's where a lot of the research is done from a nutritional perspective on altitude training as that seems to be the sweet spot between the lower oxygen concentrations which is how altitude really helps us and the challenge that puts on our physiology and then the response we get in return and it's that altitude that it's it's that kind of balance between providing that challenge and allowing us to actually train uh continuously without too much disturbance that's that's another element of the altitude paradigm so that's what we're talking about so why do we do altitude training Well, i touched on it there briefly the higher we go up the lower the oxygen concentration in the air is and um, that that makes it much much harder for us to do anything that's aerobically based so at sea level here we're used to pretty high oxygen saturation levels when we're exercising it's not overly difficult for us to get oxygen into working muscles the higher we climb however the less oxygen there is to get to those working muscles so your body has to work much much harder to do What would normally be an easy intensity exercise at sea level and as a result any exercise you are doing at altitude comes with a much much sharper physiological response so it takes a lot more out of you you get this bigger sympathetic nervous system response to that exercise so you're you're having higher levels of adrenaline cortisol your heart rate is going to be higher the exercise feels a little bit harder and your ventilation rate is increased at any given intensity compared to sea level so we're working harder to achieve the same goal but through that I suppose decreased oxygen saturation and your body having to work harder with less it sparks off something called renal erythropoiesis so your kidneys if you didn't know are where you make EPO which is a compound that stimulates the production of red blood cells in your bone marrow. And the, I suppose, the the pillar or the cornerstone of endurance performance is we use red blood cells, so hemoglobin is a red blood cell that carries oxygen around our bodies and that oxygen enables us to work aerobically. So if we have this low oxygen concentration in the air at the high altitudes and our bodies are working much, much harder to get that oxygen into our muscles, it makes sense that we start cranking up red blood cell production so that we can transport more oxygen around our our blood or our bodies at any given moment. And that leads us nicely into altitude sickness and the next physiological effect that high elevations has on our bodies. So altitude sickness is not an uncommon thing to happen to people. And basically what, what happens is your blood pressure increases and you get an increase in something called diuresis, or you might find yourself urinating a lot more. And all that is to achieve a lower plasma volume so that your, your, your blood is less uh, voluminous than it would be at sea level. And that's in an effort to concentrate your red blood cells. So you have a kind of an enhanced capacity to transport oxygen around your body. So it, it's your body working really, really hard to make sure you can keep breathing and bringing oxygen around you. And the altitude sickness is often a side effect of that homeostatic drive to keep oxygen balance steady so that's where it all stems from so the second issue that we have with altitude is the diuresis you're you're more likely to lose a lot of fluid so you can get dehydrated quite easily at altitudes for that reason secondly the higher we climb in altitude the lower the relative humidity is so the air gets much much drier so if we if we look at our skin for a moment if you're sitting indoors if you're sitting indoors the relative humidity is going to be a little bit lower than it would be outdoors and as a result there is a bigger difference if you're sweating between the concentration of water at your skin and the concentration of water in the air so if we go back to i suppose our you know our first ever science class or chemistry class one of the first principles we're taught is that things move from areas of high to low concentration so if you've got a lot of sweat on your skin there's a high water concentration there the lower the humidity in the air the easier it is for that sweat to evaporate and same with your breath the the lower the humidity the more water vapor you lose in your breath so you have this double whammy effect when you're exercising that every time you exhale or every every time you exercise your fluid losses are that much bigger so dehydration is a big problem for those at altitude and keeping athletes at altitude hydrated is really really key as a nutrition goal to make sure that athlete can actually train functionally and consistently while they're up in the air and i suppose before we go any further just to point out the one of the first times that altitude was observed to have a major effect on athletes was actually the Mexico City Olympics. It was in the 1960s. I don't specifically recall the year, but what was shown was most of the endurance events or any event that had a large aerobic uh, reliance, the finish times were hugely disrupted. And it was observed that athletes who came from areas of high altitude fared an awful lot better and it just reflected that there's an adaptive response to altitude training and that is why we tend to do it so for the first couple of days at altitude your body's working phenomenally hard to adapt to the lower oxygen levels around it and to keep oxygen transport steady that's really really important and it's trying to maintain a fluid balance and with this with that kind of exacerbated physiological response your stress hormone levels are much 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 higher than they would be at sea level and what we see is that these athletes have elevated resting metabolic rates so from a cost perspective energetically speaking you need more fuel to run you on a day-to-day basis your your metabolic rate can climb as much as 25 percent in as little as seven days at altitude to allow for all of the extra work you are doing and I guess to to segue nicely into my next point with that elevated stress response and the fact that the intensity is automatically dialed up because oxygen transport is trying to really heavily compensate a lot of the work you'll be doing at altitude will be heavily glycolytic in nature so that means You need really, really high carb intakes when you are away at altitude, or you're not going to be able to fund the work you're trying to do, in essence. And this is really, really important, as I see it as a practitioner, and I suppose someone who's clued into the research world, and I speak to athletes all the time, and there is a tendency to opt for low or no-carbohydrate approaches in the attempt to enhance exercise performance. If you try that at altitude, you're going to be laid up in bed within two or three days or you're not going to be able to train consistently or you're simply not going to be able to get an adaptive response from the work you are doing. So up in the mountain ranges is not the time to skimp on the carbohydrates. If anything, you probably need an awful lot more than you're accustomed to. So embracing that, maybe speaking to someone like myself or working off of a rule of thumb of a minimum of five grams of carbohydrates per kg of body weight per day plus one to one and a half grams per kg per hour of exercise so let's pretend you're a 80 kilo athlete and you're going away in altitude i'd be looking for you to be eating a minimum of 400 grams of carbs a day and about 80 to 120 grams of carbohydrates per hour of exercise whilst you're at altitude to make sure that we cover up your requirements easily and without effort that will enable you to have the best adaptive response possible and it'll it'll fuel you to be able to literally do the work you're trying to do and to segue on from the food side of things we then need to look at fluid intake and again just to just to acknowledge that the fluid losses at altitude are so much higher we really need to make sure an athlete is very well hydrated now, I haven't been able to find any specific hydration guidelines for altitude training. So I'm going to revert back to sea level guidelines, but we're going to throw something extra in that you can use. Most people listening to this, your fluid requirement at baseline will be 35 ml per kg of body weight. So if we're looking again at our example of an 80 kilo athlete, you're looking at around 2.8 liters a day. And that does not include exercise costs so what what could be useful for an athlete would be to weigh themselves before and after training and observe what is the difference in weight i guarantee you if you do this sweat test at sea level and at altitude your sweat losses or your weight loss during exercise it's going to be much much bigger so a rule of thumb If you can, can, if you can do this, now this is important, logistically it might not be feasible for you to carry a little weighing scales with you everywhere you go, but let's pretend you can and let's pretend you will. So if you can and you find yourself in that scenario, weigh yourself before and after a training session, so minimal clothing, put the scales in the same spot, towel off after your workout and make sure you factor in anything you've eaten or drank during the session. Let's pretend you went out for an hour and you lost about One kilo, so that would be about a liter of sweat. To rehydrate appropriately, you need to add an additional 1.2 to 1.5 liters of fluid on top of your baseline requirements to rehydrate. So, if you haven't put it together already, it's your baseline fluid requirements, which is about 35 mils per kilogram of body weight for most people listening, 30 mils per kg body weight if you're over the age of 65. There are fluid restrictions for certain people with medical conditions of which I assume none are listening to this podcast. If you are, you need to talk to your doctor about that one. But anyways, back back on track. So weight loss accrued during exercise is multiplied by 1.2 to 1.5 for adequate rehydration. And it's best to use sports drinks to rehydrate. So if, if we look at the research there, sports drinks as opposed to plain water, will achieve better rehydration responses as in your intestinal tract. There are a couple of ways you can absorb water. In particular, there's an SGLT1 transporter, which is it's your sodium glucose transporter one. So the sodium part there is one of the reasons isotonic sports drinks are formulated the way they are sodium binds this receptor it enables you to absorb carbohydrates which are found in sports drinks and you grab a couple of water molecules and absorb them in the process of doing that and that tends to have better hydrative responses compared to plain water alone if you want rapid hydration responses you could use a hypotonic sports drink so i know lucozade used to make their kind of their lucozade sport light options that was a hypotonic sports drink and why you would use a hypotonic sports drink is it's basically the same principle of things moving from high to low concentrations and to point out you can also use an isotonic sports drink for this and to, to get to the point here when we're looking at sports drinks we have hypo iso and hypertonic and isotonic means same concentration as your blood hypertonic means more concentrated than your blood hypotonic means less concentrated than your blood so if we look at how these things behave in our intestinal tract when we ingest them, if you consume a hypertonic sports drink, a very, very concentrated sports drink, that will cause an awful lot of fluid too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I suppose be released into your intestinal tract and it can cause these transient shifts in plasma volume and it can be quite difficult on your stomach. Isotonic's board strings will not have any kind of effectiveness sort because it's the same concentration as your blood it'll just cleanly absorb hypotonic sports drinks can be absorbed a little bit quicker so for bigger fluid debts those are the thing to go for if you can't get your hands on those specifically a normal plain old sports drink will do the job and sports drinks have been shown again to improve your I suppose your drive for fluid intake fluid balance and your fluid output at altitude compared to water alone so that's definitely one way to go okay so now that we've established that fluid and carbohydrates are exceptionally important at altitude and we've looked a little bit at why that might be the case the next thing that might be helpful for us to get into is iron which is every athlete's favorite micronutrient so iron is the mineral that is found in things like beef you'll find some in turkey you'll find it in the the kind of darker part of chicken meat and you'll find non-heme iron or the less bioavailable version in some beans some legumes cashew nuts oats and even chocolate actually So iron fits into our hemoglobin molecules and that is what the oxygen actually binds to so it's the iron itself that helps us carry oxygen around our bodies and just aside for a second there are a couple of reasons why athletes are more prone to developing iron deficiency and i'll run through them really quickly number one you lose around two milligrams of iron a day anyway from enterocyte cell recycling. So you recycle your intestinal tract all the time and you lose iron as a result. Number two, you lose iron in your sweat. So every time you sweat, there are tiny amounts of iron there. The more you sweat, the more you lose in that format. Number three, when you exercise, exercise causes a bit of uh, inflammatory or stress response and it, there's an evolutionary adaptation there that when we have a stress or inflammatory response our spleen's release something called hepcidin which prevents us absorbing iron in our intestinal tract and why why this happens is it, it's a primitive adaptation in that some bacteria and pathogens that can make us sick use iron uh, as a substrate to give themselves energy so we've developed this i suppose blanket response to stressors or stress of any description that we release more hepsidin to prevent us absorbing iron in an attempt to avoid potential pathogens proliferating and keeping making us sick i feel like i've worded that very poorly but i hope you understand the premise so higher intensity exercise bigger hepsidin response hepsidin bursts last for about three hours possibly more after training fun fact Lower carbohydrate diets result in bigger and more prolonged hepcidin responses. So if you frequently find yourself with iron deficiency or iron issues, take a look at your carb intake. That can often be a pillar cause of that. So that's, that's another part of the iron deficiency paradigm for athletes. Number four, foot strike hemolysis. So if you were to look at the palms of your feet, this should be nice and red. When you run or when you strike the ground with your foot the red blood cells in that cushy part of your heel get damaged so hemolysis means red blood cell being caught basically in latin that can reduce the I suppose the recycling period of those cells so you can lose a little bit there if you're a girl obviously and you have an active menstrual cycle you're going to lose some via menses or your period every couple of weeks there's this kind of a normal Window as to how long your period should be, but that's way outside the scope of today's talk. Then we have to look at you know, do you actually absorb what you eat? And this is a big thing. So, a lot of athletes will eat plenty of iron but be iron deficient, possibly because they're consuming non heme iron, so very poorly bioavailable iron. Again, maybe they're plant based, maybe they just don't like meat. It could also be a B vitamin deficiency. It could also be that you don't get a lot of vitamin C or you consume a lot of dairy or coffee or tea items that have compounds in them that hurt our ability to absorb iron, rendering us low or having deficiencies. So we're not necessarily just going to absorb everything we eat in our intestinal tract. Iron in particular is very, very finicky. So that needs to be looked at anyways in altitude we rely on iron a little bit more because if we go back to one of the first points i made we get an increase in our erythropoietic responses so our body's making more red blood cells and those red blood cells need to be filled with iron or they're not going to actually work worse yet they'll be shaped strangely and won't be able to do their job so we have higher iron requirements so it's not as simple as you're going to altitude you should take a supplement some research shows that at sea level anyway if you have normal iron levels a supplement is not additionally beneficial to your performance some research shows that if you give it to elite athletes versus you know elite athletes not supplemented at altitude there's no statistically significant difference in hemoglobin mass response the best thing to do for managing your iron if you're planning on going altitude training is getting a blood test about six to eight weeks out I would go 10 if possible to see where your ferritin levels are at so if your ferritin is below 30 that's the deficiency range there I 35 in some clinics 25 in others 20 in some spots a lot of GPs won't recognize iron deficiency anemia um, where your ferritin will be below 35 they only recognize anemia where your ferritin is below 12 and your hemoglobin starts to drop. That's besides the point. If your ferritin levels are low, it's going to cut your adaptive response to altitude training right at the knees and you're not going to get what you came for. So if you know a couple of weeks out that, right, I have a deficiency, you can then do something about it. And what tends to work very well for iron deficiency, unless you acquire injections or intramuscular iron injections would be using something like ferrograd c every second day that's more than enough of a therapeutic dose to help you have an iron level bounce back to get you back into normal ranges before you head away there are some studies that look at the use of iron supplements in terms of the doses given and how they're given so what some athletes do is they'll supplement slightly higher than 100 milligrams a day on average which is a lot of elemental iron for about four to six weeks before altitude in order to increase the hemoglobin response so the more well trained you are or the, the lower your iron status was to begin with is going to be one of the main influencers on how much of a difference that actually makes so that's again something to check with the GP or a sports medicine physician first. Secondly, the manner in which iron is given so iron can be hard on your gut. And often the advice is to give it first thing in the morning, as that's when your circulating hepcidin levels are at their lowest. They rise steadily throughout the day to be highest at night. Though a, a recent study showed that if you were to take two hundred milligrams of supplemental iron a day, and you break it into either two doses in the morning and night versus one big dose at night the big dose at night all by itself where your hepcidin levels are high actually had a better hemoglobin response and it was tolerated slightly better or, or at least not any worse than than the split dose so finding finding a strategy that works for you if you have a sensitive stomach being asleep when your stomach is upset is likely to be an easier ask but if you cannot do that or if you don't want to do that and you're taking an iron supplement in the morning if you train early in the morning you have about an hour of a grace period there after your workout if you train quite early that is that you can take that iron supplement and you're not going to be working against that hepcidin response so that's iron um really would just want to check and make sure that you know your levels are in a good place and that you're in a i suppose clinically normal range that's the key thing to take away from this if you're not there's no point in getting on the plane to head to a camp the last thing that i'm going to look at in this episode as we're coming up on the half hour mark already will be antioxidants so if we if we i suppose revert back a little bit and we look at the fact that altitude is going to cause a higher amount of oxidative stress we're getting bigger stress responses to any given work we are doing, it makes sense that we might want to have more antioxidants in our diets to help us battle said stress. Now this can get a little bit murky because stressing your body basically is the purpose of exercise. So if we do too much to reduce the stress response to exercise itself, we're going to cut our adaptive uh, gains off at the knees. So... From my understanding of the research and just this topic in general, antioxidant supplements are not necessarily recommended. So, you wouldn't be taking high levels of something like coenzyme Q10, lycopene, or cherry active just because you're at altitude. There are other reasons you might take those things, which again is outside of the scope of today's talk. But rather, what you would do is you would have a diet that is high in antioxidants and the easiest way to do that and just to to clarify why we do that is in diet if you're going to get antioxidants there they're going to be present in reasonable amounts if you take an antioxidant supplement you're going to get what's probably called a super physiological dose so something you're never going to come across in your diet something that your body is really not well attuned to And in the supplements, you're often going to find enough of a dose that will actually cut off or harm your exercise adaptive responses for no real additional benefit versus food. So we're taking a food first approach here. You might have heard me say that in previous episodes, that food first approach is part of the dietetic process. So if you can meet your requirements from food alone, then we always try to do that so antioxidant rich foods just off the top of my head you're not going to go too far wrong with dark chocolate so that's that's a big win for a lot of people to hear that mixed nuts 30 grams a day really high antioxidant sources there and your fruit and veg so the easiest way to conceptualize how can i get the most antioxidants into my diet the most varied antioxidant palette that would be you would look at eating the rainbow So generally speaking, if you go for deeper, darker colored fruits like your plums, your blueberries, raspberries, you're going to get a lot of anthocyanins and pelargonadins in there. They're very, very useful. They're very, very strong antioxidants. If you go for your greens, you're going to get um, in broccoli in particular, lots of glutathione, which is an incredibly potent antioxidant itself. And then just generally eating fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, etc., you'll pick up plenty of flavonoids, isoflavonoids, flavones etc etc and you'll probably meet all your vitamin requirements too. So that's, that's all you really need to worry about. So that's the end of today's episode and just to recap we've looked at what altitude training is, why we do it, how it affects our bodies, we've looked at the requirement to be present at altitude for about two to three weeks to get an adaptive response and we've looked at the four dietary factors to really look at to ensure you get the most out of your altitude camp each and every time and just to recap that would be high carbohydrate diets making sure your fluid requirements are more than met making sure your iron status is well within range and that you supplement accordingly and appropriately if need be and you want to make sure that your diet is chock full of antioxidants but not antioxidant supplements if you remember those four elements then your altitude training camps will always go as well as they possibly could so i just want to say thanks for listening i hope you found this episode useful and if you did enjoy this episode or find it helpful the best way you can help me is you can leave me a review on Spotify or you can share the podcast with a friend and let them know, give them this information uh, so that they can benefit from it and that will generally be the best way you can help support this podcast and ensure that I can keep making these episodes. Just again, thanks for listening. just one or two quick things before i sign off for today so item number 1 i am delighted to inform you that i've been selected for a phd scholarship program in actu to look at the health effects of underfueling in male endurance athletes a topic which i work with quite a lot and i've helped a lot of athletes overcome in recent years and months and the second announcement in the coming weeks I will be launching some cool sports science services. So you can come to the clinic here in Clonmel and you can do sweat testing yourself. We can check the sodium content of your sweat. We'll be able to tell you what your sweat rates are and give you personalized hydration and fuel plans for that. And there also will be the ability to check your resting metabolic rate in clinic. So that is the calorie requirements you have at baseline and from that if weight loss is your goal or body composition is your goal or you simply want to avoid under we'll know exactly what your calorie requirements are so those services are coming soon keep an eye out for that if you're interested in availing of them please feel free to reach out and get in touch as always thank you for listening to this podcast keep your eyes and ears out for upcoming episodes they're going to be coming out with more frequency again I have uh, I've bulk, I've bulk recorded a couple of episodes today, so they're going to be released a little bit more frequently, but there's a lot of interesting stuff coming up.